Amen. If you'll remain standing for the reading of God's Word, if you'll turn to Luke chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 21 through 40 this morning. You can find that in your pew Bible in front of you on page 857, and we would encourage you to have your Bible open to see that these things are true, that they come from the Word of God, and this is God's Word to you, and what a blessing again it is to open God's Word on this New Year's morning. Let us read beginning in verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angels, before he was conceived in the womb. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God, and said, Lord, now you are letting your, depart, letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for a revelation to the Gentiles, and for the glory to your people, Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what had said about him. And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul as well, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God, to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Thus the reading of God's holy word, you may be seated. Well, every year at the end of the year, there is a list that comes out of the top baby names from the previous years. And because I know you're just dying to hear them, I have compiled them for you. For the year 2022, the boys' names, the top 10, first of all, would be Liam, no doubt influenced by the Myers themselves because they're such trendsetters, Noah Oliver, Elijah, Mateo, Lucas, Levi, Asher, James, and Leo. The girls' names, Olivia, Emma, Amelia, Ava, Sophia, Isabella, Luna, Mia, Charlotte, and Evelyn. And that might be all well and good and cute, and you might be interested in that, or perhaps not, but for myself, I'm much more interested in a different list, and that is the strangest baby names of the year. And so here is a list of the top strangest names. A, B, C, D, E. COVID. (laughs) Corona. 
sanitizer. John, you might think, why is that interesting? Well, he was the second, but instead of calling him Junior, they call him John 2.0. Binks, Shelly, with a money sign as the S. Facebook, Google, hashtag, like, heart eye emoji. These are real names, believe it or not. Caitlin, spelled K with an eight, L-Y-N. You'll get it. And FIFA. All of this demonstrates that these people probably should not have had children. <laughs> but naming is important, and it is significant. We often do not give much thought to the act of naming a child. Hopefully you gave more thought than some of these people, but every child needs a name. And so we give them a name that we like or has some significance. But I've said this before, naming is biblical and in fact theological. When God gave the right for Adam to name all of the animals, that was more than just giving Adam a task. His naming them demonstrates his dominion and his authority over them. The same is true of our children. Your naming them demonstrates as a parent your authority over them, your God-given right to parent them, to be a parent to these children. And so you have that privilege of naming them. And whatever you name them, that is their name. And for better, as we have just seen sometimes for worse, that is what they will be known by. And they no doubt could change their name later, but it will forever be their birth name. And these names are even known to God himself, the names that he knows us by. And so naming is very significant. And so when we come to this passage and we read of the naming of Jesus and his parents presenting him at the temple to be dedicated, we might think that outwardly these things don't really matter much. You might even be saying this morning, all right, get on with it, Luke. Let's get on to the life of Jesus. Let's get on to his miracles and get on to his teaching. Enough of this fluffy stuff. Well, this is not fluffy at all. This is actually quite important for what we see Luke giving us is demonstrating a a pattern, a pattern for our Savior that begins in the very beginning of his life and even in his infancy that goes and carries on all the way throughout to his very death. And we see these themes throughout Luke's gospel. And it also demonstrates to us what we are called to as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus into a new year. And so we'll see this passage in three points, infant lowly, infant holy, and then infant glory. First, infant lowly. As we come off of the thrill of the Christmas story told to us by Luke, the birth of Christ, and the angel's announcement to the shepherds, we might wonder, well, what else happened? Well, we are told by Luke that Mary and Joseph stayed there in Bethlehem for a time and being a proper Jewish couple called the local rabbi to have their son circumcised on the eighth day. As we know, Jewish males were circumcised. This was their birth identification. But this was much more than just a ritual ceremony. 
This was even much more than a cultural Jewish identification. Rather, this was a sign of the covenant. We must remember that, that God gave this sign to his people, gave it to Father Abraham and to his descendants so that this circumcise and the circumcision was God's marking out of his own. As God said to Abraham, I will be your God and the God of your children. This sign was given to them as just that, the sign of the covenant, that covenant that was made between God and us, between God and our forefathers. Yes, it was an outward sign, but it was to be much more than just outward. It was to be an inward reality, a reality that was to be true of the heart as much as it was of the flesh. And what we see throughout the Old Testament is that it was God-initiated, And God applied. No man was saying, you know what, God, I want to do this for you. To show you how much I love you. Rather, it's quite the opposite, isn't it? It was God saying, this is how much I love you. Despite yourself, despite your sin, you are mine. I am calling you my own. And so Abraham and every male child born to Abraham and downward would undergo this sign to his sons and to their sons, all the way down to Jesus himself, marking out, preserving the seed line to the time of Christ, who is indeed the seed of God. And what this demonstrates, even though we might pass over it, is that it demonstrates the faithfulness of God. What God has promised, he would and has fulfilled Just as we sang earlier, great is thy faithfulness, we see that with Jesus coming to be circumcised, that he came from this long line of those that were circumcised to bring about the seed, the Messiah, the Christ. And so Jesus being circumcised on that day proclaims to us that God indeed is faithful, that God is good all the time, that he has not forgotten, that he fulfills all of his promises. And we need to remember that as we begin this new year, do we not? And we might ask the question, why is it that Jesus underwent this circumcision? Yes, he was Jewish, but did he need to? Well, he did not need to in the sense of being made pure because that's what circumcision was about. Circumcision was the the cutting off the rolling away of the guilt and iniquity. In part, it was to be made pure before God. And as we understand that, we know that Christ did not need to be made pure. He was already pure. He was the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And yet, He underwent this sign. He underwent it even at the earliest age because He, as our Savior, must identify with his people in order to be the representative, in order to be the covenant head. See, he did not need the removal of sins, but his people did. And he was to be the one that would do it for them. And so we see with this circumcision, the the first shedding of blood of our Savior, not for himself, but for us. No, it would not be the shedding of blood unto death, but it would be a part of the 
perfect obedience that would lead to his death. And thus Christ's circumcision and Christ's obedience, fulfilling all of those circumcisions prior of all of those Jewish males, all of which would be looking to this Messiah to be circumcised in the heart as much as in the flesh, to say that their true identity is found in him, that they belong to Christ, they are represented by Christ, and that they had the sign and the the symbol, so to speak, to prove of it. And that is true not of just the Jewish men of the Old Testament. It's true of New Testament believers, Jew and Gentiles like us. And it's demonstrated in our baptism. See, we are no longer circumcised, are we? We no longer need the shedding of blood. But we and our children are marked out. We're called out. In 1 Corinthians 7, it says that they are sanctified through the washing of water and the forgiveness of sins, the removal of our sins in Christ. And so your baptism, just like circumcision, points you to Christ and has you to say, in him I am saved. In him I am sanctified. In him I am set apart. In him I have my salvation. Why? Because Christ indeed is our Savior. And that is what makes this naming ceremony at his circumcision so significant. Again, we can gloss over this so quickly, can't we? That he was called Jesus. We might say, yes, uh, we know that. But this was not merely a name because he needed a name. Now, this was the naming of the incarnate Son of God. Indeed, this was a new and special revelation to the people of God. That God had revealed to his people something that had been concealed for, for years, for centuries. Think about it. Abraham, Moses, all of the Old Testament saints, yes, they had their hope, they had their confidence in the Messiah, and yet they never knew his particular name. It's not until his name is revealed here that we know it to be Jesus, the name that he will be known by for all of eternity, that this God-man who is named Christ Jesus. It's the name given to him, not by Mary and Joseph, but by God, his Father, In fact, we read that in what Luke tells us, that he was called Jesus. The name that was given him by the angels, or the angel before he was conceived, in the womb. And you remember when the angel came to Joseph and tells Joseph that your betrothed wife is going to be with child, and that you are to name him Jesus. And then the angel gives the reason why He is to be called Jesus. He says, because he will save his people from their sins. And so, literally, the name of Jesus means Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. And so you see that his name signifies his mission. That he came to save. And how precious that is. Every time his mother Mary called his name throughout his childhood, it was a proclamation of the gospel. Every time someone said his name, it was the very reason why he came to earth. 
that he came to save. And he still does by saving you and me. And so what a blessing it is every time that we have the privilege of saying his name, of uttering his name, of praying his name, of praising his name, with that name comes the answer. Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. Jesus saves. It's a a name without no, without its, excuse me, it is a name that has meaning. It has significance, doesn't it? And therefore, what a blessing it is to have the name of Jesus upon our lips. Indeed, it is the name that is above all names. It's precious to us. And it is to be hallowed. It's like a precious heirloom. There's nothing more precious to the Christian than the name of Jesus. And so as we begin a new year, is there anything more beautiful, more meaningful to you? To not only know the name of Jesus, that name that was hidden, that has now been revealed, but to know the the meaning and the significance of it. Not just to know it intellectually, right? But to know it experientially. To know that the, the Lord saves, Jesus saves. He saves me and he saves you. And no matter what you are going through or or will go through in this new year, he will save. He not only has He is, and He will be there as our Savior. All those that are His, we know the Savior. His name is Jesus. And therefore, we can say that this infant lowly came all the way down to us to save you and me. But we see something else in this passage, not only infant lowly, but infant holy, just as we sang earlier. What Luke wants to show to us that he makes abundantly clear in this passage is that Jesus came in the fulfillment of the law. Perhaps you missed it as we read through it, but five times he mentions the law in this passage. And so for it to be repeated once or twice or three times, we might say, yeah, that gives some emphasis to it, but five times is to put a spotlight upon it. For the author to say, do not miss this, that Jesus came in fulfillment of the law. We see this after the birth of Jesus. Mary and Joseph went to the temple, it says in verse 22, for the purification according to the law. Verse 23, it says that they went to dedicate their firstborn to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. And so, in Mary and Joseph keeping the law and bringing their son according to the law, Jesus himself kept the law. All that was required. Again, this might seem very minor, but it is not. That Christ submitted himself to the law. All of it. And so Paul can say Christ was born of a woman, born under the law. That every law even from childbirth, needed to be perfectly kept and fulfilled. Otherwise, we would not have a perfect Savior. And we would not and could not be saved. Because, see, we need not only a Savior to take the penalty for our sins, but we need also someone to fulfill the perfect righteousness of God. 
We need someone to to take the penalty for our law breaking, but we also need one that stands in our place that does the law keeping as well. And so through Christ we have what we sing, the, the double cure. Again, it's not because Christ needed this. He was righteous already. This was for us. His righteousness for our unrighteousness. And it's part of his submission. It's a part of his humility. No one at the time, no doubt, understood its full significance. Probably even Mary and Joseph didn't quite fully understand it. But Luke, the author, a Gentile of all people, says, don't miss this. Even from birth, this Jesus was faithful to all aspects of righteousness. In fact, you'll say at the the very end of this passage, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. They fulfilled everything according to the law. And in so doing, in fulfilling the law, you see a, a little bit of irony in this story, don't you? Did you miss it? Did you see what they used to dedicate Jesus, what they came as the sacrifice for their purification. They gave two birds, which was allowed by the law, the Old Testament law, if you could not afford a lamb, which demonstrates the poverty and obviously the further humility of our Lord. He was born to those that were were poor, socio and economically. He was not born into a rich home into a palace with the king or queen as his mother and father, but no, to to humble and poor servants. But do you not see the, the paradox here? That there was no lamb for the birth of the lamb of God. Why? Because they could not afford it. But it's as if God the Father was saying, that's all right, I have it covered. I will provide the lamb I will provide my own son who will be the perfect lamb. And he will not be just for those that can afford it, but those that have money to buy. No, no one can purchase. No one can buy this gift. The cost is too great. And it indeed comes in the form not of a wage that we can give to God, but it comes down from heaven to earth as a gift, a perfect gift gift. Perhaps Santa didn't bring all that you wanted for Christmas this year, but if you're in Christ, you have the the greatest gift, the gift that money cannot buy, the gift of Christ Jesus as your Savior, and he never lets you down. He provides it all, all that we need if we have the the spiritual eyes to see all that we could ever want, his perfect righteousness for our lack thereof, his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, he is the perfect uh, Savior, the, the perfect gift for sinners like you and me because he is indeed the infant holy. Well, third, we see also the infant Glory. This is a, a beautiful scene as Jesus is brought into the temple. And there is so much symbolism here, isn't there? 
What did the temple in Jerusalem represent? It represented the the presence of God. It represented the place where God and his people would meet, the place where people were made reconciled to God through the, the shedding of blood. And all of that was pointing forward to Christ. Christ was the presence of God among men. He was the Emmanuel. He is and was the the mediator between God and the man by being the God-man. And thus he was the reconciliation of God to man and man to God. In other words, what we see in this passage, if we have the eyes to see it, that the, the true temple was brought into the symbolic temple. And there in the temple were two Old Testament saints that were waiting to meet the true temple of God, the long-expected Messiah. The first we read of is, is Simeon. We were told that he was righteous and devout. In verse 25, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And he was foretold that he would see the Messiah, the Messiah that was coming soon. He would see him before he would die. And it happened on that day. That day when Mary and Joseph come to bring Jesus into the temple to dedicate him as every Jewish couple would with their firstborn child, this man who seemingly did not know Mary and Joseph, and Mary and Joseph did not know him, but he knew them by revelation. And he knew that this was the Christ. And this man, presumably an old man, took this child up in his arms, no doubt with tears in his eyes. And it says that he blessed and praised the Lord. And he says these words that are written for us in verse 29, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. In other words, Simeon is saying, I'm, I'm good, Lord. My life is now complete because you have fulfilled your promises. You have kept your word. Your word to me, but your word to all of us, to all of our fathers. And I am at peace. No doubt Simeon had many other hopes and many other dreams. Probably much of went unfulfilled as we all do. But all of those things pale in comparison to seeing the Messiah. Why? Because he tells us why. Verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Do you hear those words? My eyes have seen your salvation. He doesn't say my eyes have seen the the path of salvation or the the way of salvation or one rung on the ladder on the way towards salvation. No, my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon is saying this is salvation. He is it. Christ is the Savior. He is the one in which we are saved and must be saved. And not just for him, but for all people. As he says in verse 31, that you have prepared in the presence of all a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. That this was a savior, not just for Simeon, not just for the Jews, but for all people, Jews and Gentiles. What a revelation, what a word that was spoken of this glorious infant. But it wasn't over just as It says Mary and Joseph were 
wide-eyed and marveled at what was said, a, a second witness comes to testify and proclaim of this child, this time a woman, Anna, a prophetess, it says that was married for seven years, and then the Greek seems to indicate that he, she was widowed for 84 years after that. So that means that she was probably well into her hundreds, probably 105 at this time. And instead of being remarried, she devoted herself to the Lord. She did not depart the temple, worshiping, fasting, praying night and day. It says, which demonstrates that you can never get too old to worship God. Is there any 105-year-olds amongst us this day? I think not. So all of you are younger. All of you can praise God if Anna can praise God night and day. In fact, some people might look at Anna and say, well, this woman has has a problem. She's a little bit crazy. She's probably, you know, too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. No, she did not have a problem. Rather, she had a passion and a devotion to God. And when Jesus, this infant, comes, her attention is fixed on him in praise and in thanks. And she says to all those there that were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, this is our redemption. Do you see these two witnesses Scripture says that by the testimony of two or three, every matter shall stand. And so we have Simeon saying, this is the salvation of God. This is the salvation for all of us. My eyes have seen your salvation. Anna is saying, this is our redemption. And you might say, those are only the the work of God alone, and you are right. That is exactly what they are saying. This is no ordinary child. This is the infant of glory. And yet, Jesus was not entering into a world that was eagerly waiting and anticipating his arrival. Like Simeon and Anna, it was quite the opposite. He was entering into a world of darkness rather than light. And that is why Simeon says to Mary, your son will divide. He will be the one, in verse 34, that is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. A sign that is opposed. You see, one that is opposed, not one that is willingly received. Why will he be opposed? Why will he be the one that is appointed for the the rise and fall of many? Because he will expose hearts. He will expose wickedness. And that human hearts are desperately evil. And no doubt this was a a foreshadowing, a prophecy of Simeon of the suffering that Christ would endure. Indeed, he would be the suffering servant. But this suffering would extend beyond him. It would go to his mother even as it says, and a sword, Mary, will pierce through your own soul as well. Mary would have to see her son suffer. The insults, the slander, the, the false trial the accusations and the crucifixion. She would see it and witness it. And Mary, as a, a follower of Christ, a follower of her own son, would need to suffer with Christ in his suffering and in his pain. It would have to be the, the cross that she would have to bear. Well, how do we apply a, a word like this this day? On a brand new 
New Year's morning. A passage like this, I think, is fitting. And first and foremost, it would tell to us in the beginning of this new year that we have a sufficient Savior. One that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. See, the calendar may have flipped, but the Lord Jesus Christ has not. The Savior that was sufficient last year is still fully sufficient this year. And you do not need to reapply His benefits remain the same. And so if you are trusting in Christ, then the good news is your sins are still covered for this new year, just as they were this last year. You're still protected. You are still in his hands. He is and will be forever the King of kings and Lord of lords. We see that from from birth to death. He proves himself to be the Savior, that his name comes with meaning and significance from eternity past to eternity future, Christ remains the same. And do you know him? And do you love him all the more as a result? Second, I think this passage would tell us through the eyes of Simeon and Anna, who are precious, precious saints of the Lord, that they would stand as witnesses for us this day. And point us in this new year to Christ once again. They would say to us, this is salvation. This is redemption. This is where your peace is found. This is where you are to find your contentment. This and this alone, you need nothing more. It's found in Christ. We have Simeon and Anna saying, here, here. Here, in Christ, in Christ alone, your faith and your trust must be. He is our salvation. He is Jesus, the Lord that saves. And so do we hear their voices this morning proclaiming that to us? And third, in the light of Christ's salvation and his gift, I think we see a a pattern not only of Christ, but a pattern for all Christians. And we need humble submission to God as faithful servants, even as suffering servants, not as a repayment for Christ. We could never repay that gift. Remember, it is a gift. But in humble gratitude, in honor and service to our Lord. You notice what Simeon calls himself when he prays to the Lord, Lord, you are now letting your servants departs in peace. That's how he saw himself. That's how we are all to to see ourselves. Anna, likewise, perhaps as I mentioned, there are probably people saying, you know what, she's a little bit crazy. You know what, we need a little bit more crazy for Christ, don't we? Those that are sold out and devoted to God alone. And so once again in this new year, as servants, we humbly bow the knee to our king and say, Lord, we are yours. We are your servants. We are here to do your will. And we want to do it joyfully. We want to do it willingly. All our lives are are your lives. All our gifts are your gifts. Our talents are your talents. Our possessions are your possessions. We give them to you. We withhold nothing. Do as you see fit even if that means a, a sword must pierce our own souls, just like they would Mary's. And so today, while it's still the new year, 
I challenge you, I, I, I would love for you to take a, a few moments, perhaps this afternoon, before you, you go to bed tonight, take out a, a journal or a notepad or a piece of paper. And you can call it resolutions, you can call it whatever you want. But I encourage you to, to pray a prayer. Lord, what would you desire of me in this year? What is it that you would want from me? What can I give to you? What can I give up? What can I do? What are ways that I can help, that I can serve, that I can once again be a humble servant of Christ, willingly and joyfully bowing the knee to you? It could be something very simple. It could be extreme. It may even be perhaps a bit crazy. But write it down. But don't leave it there. Speak to it to others. Talk to your spouse about it. Tell your, your men's small group what it is. Your, your Bible study ladies. Send it to your shepherding elder. And say, I, I believe this is what the Lord would have me to do this year. If he would allow me to do so by his grace and through his spirit as a, as a servant of his. And would you ask me about it? In a month, in, in three months, in six months. So that's not just something that's written down. All for his glory's sake. Because as we come to this table this morning, that is exactly what we're doing. We are dedicating ourselves again in this new year to our Lord and to our Savior. That Christ as an infant, this one that was holy, this one that was lowly, this one that was full of glory, came to be our perfect Savior now and ever and has saved and redeemed people. We want to be dedicated to him to live our lives all of our days, as long as the Lord would give us breath for him. For like Simeon, we have seen and we know the salvation of God. His name is Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for a beautiful passage like this, where there's so many things that are symbolic of who Christ not only was, but is, and will ever and forever remain. And so, Lord, as we think about the Savior that he is for us, would we be encouraged, would we be strengthened, would we be renewed in the goodness and the mercy that is ours in Christ, in the forgiveness of sins that is ours. And so, Lord, as we approach the table, we want to confess our sins to you. And so if you would take your worship guide at this time and turn to page five, let's continue to pray this corporate confession of sins and then we'll have a time of private confession. Let us pray together out loud. Almighty God, our heavenly Father, who does admit your people unto such wonderful communion, that partaking of the body and blood of your dear Son, they should dwell in him and he in them. We unworthy sinners, approaching to your presence, beholding your glory, do abhor ourselves and repent in dust and ashes. We have grievously sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed, provoking most justly your wrath and indignation against us. The remembrance of our transgressions and shortcomings fills us with sorrow and shame. Yet now, O most merciful Father, have mercy upon us for the sake of Jesus Christ, 
Forgive us all our sins. Purify us. Enable us heartily to forgive others as we ask you to forgive us and grant that we may hereafter serve and please you in newness of life to the honor and glory of your name through Jesus Christ our Lord.